Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Stephen King cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week, I'll review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication, and I am so ingrained in saying that that I, I I'm not I'm not I'm not used to not saying that. So, so everyone, if you're tuning in for the first time, the original mission statement of the Stephen King cast was, as I just said, to to read each of Stephen King's works in the chronological order of publication, but done it and now i'm just waiting for end of watch to come out so i I can review that but in the meantime between the time i i put down uh the bizarre of bad dreams and uh the time i i pick up uh end of watch i've been um uh, publishing some top 10 lists and uh i have been reviewing 112263 on hulu so that's what the the bulk of this episode is going to be devoted to is the fourth episode of the eight-part event, um, but before I even get there, I would like to shamelessly plug uh, my own work. So, if you have been listening lately, you know that I have been fortunate enough to have uh, a few of my stories be accepted in four different publications out there, and um, I'm trying to to support the the publications that have picked me up. Um, so, if you have been uh, if you have enjoyed the, the Stephen King cast and if you have enjoyed my thoughts on the horror genre and what Stephen King is able to do, then I, I think that clearly, clearly the man has inspired me. So if you have liked his works, I, you know, um, I'm requesting that, that you head on over uh, and, and, and do me a favor to any of the, the publications here. Uh, the, the first story that was picked up was uh, Room 207, which can be found in the pages of Dark Moon Digest, issue number 22, edited by Lori Michelle and Max Booth III. Now, you can pick it up a number of ways. Uh, you can either order a, a physical copy and have it sent to your house, or you can download it uh, on Kindle. It's a, it's a good-looking copy. Um, it's sitting in my bookshelf. It's fun to have... Uh, <laughs> You know, copy or your own stuff. Um, and on Amazon, there are currently four reviews uh, for this particular um, publication. And my story, Room 207, happens to be mentioned in three of them, with one review calling it a standout amongst all the others, and another one describing it as particularly unsettling, which is great, um, because that's exactly what I was going for. So it's it's a fun story, and I think that... Uh, you know, fans of Stephen King, if you're listening to this, I, I think that you'll probably appreciate it. Um, up next, we have uh, a story called uh, This World Will Eat You All the Way Up, which can be found in Nine Tales Told in the Dark, issue 9. If you do an Amazon search for Nine Tales Told in the Dark, uh, the, the first result that you'll see is issue 10. Uh, my story can be found in issue 9. Um and This World Will Eat You All the Way Up is a story that, that follows two friends on a road trip with um, a lot of unspoken tension between them and what happens when the unspoken becomes life-threatening. So there's a lot of uh, sort of the, the tip of the iceberg storytelling going on there and all around uh, the horror genre itself. Uh, 
Also, we have Wax and Wayne, A Gathering of Witch Tales, edited by David T. Neal from Nose Touch Press, which just was released last week. My copy came in the mail this past week. It's a great-looking publication, guys. Um, and with The Witch having just come out in theaters not too long ago, if you uh, are, are writing the, the, the witch craze, then head on over and order yourself a copy of Wax and Wayne, A Gathering of Witch Tales. You will not be disappointed. My story is entitled Hopscotch. Basically what it is, it takes the worst aspects of youth culture and examines what happens when youth culture bumps into a much, much older and much more deadlier uh, culture and uh, the fun that, that comes from that. And the latest one to be picked up um, is a short story entitled Forget Me Not, which will be found in the pages of Trists of Fate magazine coming out this August. Um, and that is an existential examination of, of, of relationships and the horrors that come um, when you lose your identity after a breakup. So um, if you have been interested in, in branching out, then there are some options for you. And there are a lot of other great stories found within those collections from a number of, of authors out there. So if you love the horror genre and you've all caught up on your Stephen King, then, then feel free to, to head on to any of those um, because I know that I would greatly appreciate it and uh, the, the publishers of these, these small-time um publications uh who could use all the love that they can get will uh would really appreciate it as well so up next um i just want to read some itunes reviews from everyone out there and i'm not sure if i read this one so i apologize if i already have um but this one is from bryant who has written in before to the 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 podcast, uh, a good friend of the podcast, and Bryant writes, I've only just discovered this and have only listened to the first half dozen episodes, but based on those, I'd say this is very close to being the exact type of King podcast I would make if I were the sort of person who could make a podcast. The host is very knowledgeable, very opinionated, and very good at verbalizing his thoughts. He is not boring, which is always a danger with a solo podcast, and he's got a good sense of humor. If you've got an interest in King, this one gets a very high recommendation from me. So, Bryant, um, thank you for, for the kind words, and thank you for all of the thoughts that you have provided uh, for us um, with your emails. Up next, we have uh, Dr. Nintendo, who writes, Great breakdowns, great knowledge. I love Stephen King, he writes. I just started reading, I'm sorry, I started reading with it when I was studying abroad in Singapore and got so caught up reading it, it took only three days to finish. Love this podcast for the great details and depth. The snoring dogs are also hilarious. Um, so for first time listeners, I, I when I, whenever I record, I'm in my basement and I'm keeping an eye on, on my two uh, furry co-hosts. I have two pugs and actually... You'll probably be able to, to hear one of them. She's curled up next to me right now. So if you do hear some sort of droning in the background, it's probably one of my dogs. Up next, we have R.B. Cumber, uh, who writes, This podcast is fantastic if you love Stephen King. The reviews and discussions are thoughtful and have gotten me thinking about things I hadn't thought before in my rereads. I love the connections with the Dark Tower. And um, so so thank you, R.B. Cumber. Um and with the Dark Tower being much more in the news a lot more, uh, you know, I'm, I'm glad that there are 
so many Dark Tower emails that have been coming in, and I know that I've shared a lot of thoughts that a lot of you have written in on the Dark Tower, so I will continue to to be dropping uh, Dark Tower news as it comes out, um, and I'll touch upon that a little bit in, in this episode. And then lastly, uh, for this week, we have Germany. 2263 who writes great this podcast is a must for all diehard king fans i don't even know the name of this podcaster but he is very knowledgeable about king books and speaks intelligently regarding his reviews this is not just a here is what happened review this is a let's get down and dirty and discuss books movies and short stories podcast and in my opinion the best king podcast there is so if you're a king fan you will thoroughly enjoy this podcast so thank you, Germany2263, and thank you, everyone, for, for writing in. Um, if you have not done so already, feel free to write in at either stephenkingcast at yahoo.com to share your thoughts. Um, but also, a review on iTunes will go a long way in getting the Stephen King cast out there. With 1122, uh, in the middle, with us being in the middle of 112263 on Hulu, and with the, the internet being taken... Um, by storm with all of the the dark tower news over the last couple weeks there's a lot of interest on stephen king and um, the more reviews um, for the podcast the the more prevalent it becomes for anyone that happens to be seeking out um, a stephen king uh, podcast so if you love the stephen king cast and you you want to support it um, i don't ask for money but um but uh, yeah, a, a, a nice review or just just a review period. Um, if there are any any uh, faults that you have with it, I, I do need I do need critical feedback as well. So um, that's one area that, that you can write to. And as I've mentioned, Stephen Kingcast at yahoo.com. I need you guys to write in because I just I can't do this alone. I need your thoughts on all things Stephen King. We have had great, great experiences of, of people sharing their life stories in regards to Stephen King. Um, and it, it just really, through these emails, we're really able to explore the that that intersection, that crossroads between fiction and reality, where the the two get completely blended to uh, based on, on 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 the power of his writing. So up first, we have Bill who writes. You mentioned in your show um, on the Dead Zone film that you can't understand why it isn't included in the discussion with films like Shawshank and Stand by Me. Then you do your list of top ten adaptations, and the Dead Zone isn't on it. I'm really confused. Um, so, Bill, uh, you got me on that one, um, and guilty as charged. I am—I was part of the problem in, in, in this regard. I completely forgot about the Dead Zone movie when I did my, my list of top ten. Um, and if I were to go back, I would definitely—I I think that actually might include the Dead Zone in there. Um, and in terms of top ten movie moments, uh, there's a scene with Christopher Walken talking about what god has done for him that i would probably include there and i would also probably include uh frank dodd's death by scissors in in uh in 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 the top movie moments as well so bill thank you for 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 calling me out on that because this is what i'm talking about guys i sometimes need to be checked and then a constant listener writes dear stephen Kingcast." just a recent listener here i've been listening to your podcast for a while and have absolutely loved it it's a really engaging, analytical, and funny podcast and really does nail why exactly Stephen King is such a good writer. 
I only got into him fully in 2014. Pet Cemetery, I think, was the book that really was my gateway in, and it helped that I loved the movie. My only other exposure to him pre-Pet Cemetery was The Green Mile and on writing, and unfortunately, I can't remember the details of The Green Mile. I was in my freshman year of high school when I read it. I just listened to your Most Painful Moments episode, and I have to say your choices were spot on. I was actually thinking of adding my own Most Painful Stephen King moments here in no particular order. So spoilers on, guys. Um, and a constant listener, thank you for, for, for writing so far. Um, and it just jogged my memory. Uh, please note that from here on out, there are spoilers for anything under the banner Stephen King. So if you aren't... If you don't care about spoilers, then, then you can continue uh, listening. But if you do care about spoilers and you really haven't read any everything under the sun, and that includes 112263, um, then this might might this might not be for you because we're going to be spoiling some stuff. So here are the most painful Stephen King moments. Um, so uh, Ralphie being chosen to be Linoge's protege in Storm of the Century. Pretty much everything about that moment is perfect. The acting, the music, the buildup, everything is just perfect. There's Linoge, and for all the cheesy catchphrases and scary faces and all, Calm Fior really plays him with a certain calm restraint when it actually comes to the choosing the kids scene even kind of sounding like he has to be the bearer of bad news. Even though he's really just a kidnapper, plain and simple, when he tells Molly that she agreed to the terms, which makes it creepier than if he were some mustache-twirling villain. And Molly, throughout the miniseries, she's been pretty stoic, and like Mike, except for the turning point regarding the kids, has done the job, along with Tess and Ursula, of holding people together. She's had two instances of losing it, mostly where Ralphie's involved, but she's usually been in control. So her actually breaking down after Ralphie's chosen is even more powerful. And Mike's reaction? Ye gods. Him pleading for someone to bring Ralphie back and I'll do anything you want is just gut-wrenching. And yes, I completely agree with that. Um, and so for anyone uh, first tuning in that didn't listen to my... Uh, Storm of the Century review, one of the things that I pointed out was just the fact that uh, I said that Andre Linoge, the character, kind of tried too hard. He has a little bit too many catchphrases, um, and he makes too many scary faces for no reason whatsoever. But yes, I really like this character. I think he is an incredible villain for all of the reasons that you just listed. The fact that he is so... Um, logical in the end and yeah he kind of does come across as like the bearer of bad news it's it's awesome it's it's an awesome way of going about it it, it makes um him be more complex than you'd you'd typically think that he would be um up next we have speaking of ursula her finding peter's body i admit is just another scene that gets me becky ann baker is just amazing in that scene and mike is doing his best to try and comfort her it's i think one of the bits Bits of good in Little Tall Island, Linoge overlooks. The capacity for compassion in those who live there, and the capacity for heroism. He might say that the good's an illusion, and the little fables folk tell themselves to get through their day without screaming too much. But I think for all the multitudes of horrific things that Little Tall Island has kept secret, there's plenty of compassion and warmth in there as well. At the risk of going off on a tangent, I find it interesting Linoge's reaction to Mike refusing to believe that good's an illusion. He doesn't laugh. He just says with a faint sort of smile, I know, a good boy to the last. I guess whether he's being sarcastic or not is really up to interpretation because Linoge is kind of a hard nut to crack. I guess he's more of a symbolic character on two fronts. The charming boogeyman who can steal your kids. 
which I think is more realistic. It's kind of like Pennywise. Clowns don't live in sewers, but there is the person who can trick your kid into thinking they're trustworthy when they're really not. I don't think Linoche is Pennywise, but in terms of the whole looks trustworthy to kids but is really dangerous thing, they are at least similar. And the manifestation of unpleasant truths that are just coming to light. And I think Mike's kind of a symbolic character in that regard too. Sort of a force of goodness and hope and belief and strength to stand against evil. It might not have been enough in the end, but Mike did try. And back on topic. Sorry about that, by the way. Do not apologize. That was a great thought, and we need more thoughts like that here on the Stephen King cast. The revelation of what happened to Vera's kids as well as her leaving the money to Dolores. And it's from Dolores Claiborne. It's just a heartbreaking reveal for the first one. And the second, well, it goes to show that Vera had her issues, to say the least, but she was not a bad person. It would have been pretty easy for King to have just gone the sort of Devil Wears Prada route and made Vera a one-dimensional sort of bad boss, but he didn't. And it's in, and it's one of many reasons, in my opinion, that Dolores Claiborne is one of my personal favorites. Agreed. The scene in Salem's Lot at Danny Glick's funeral, where Mr. Glick is just inconsolable and refusing to believe that Danny is dead. That was actually something I thought of, I thought the 2004 version of Salem's Lot really mishandled. I haven't seen the 1979 version. Because in the movie, they kind of have another character's conversation taking over the scene, so you can't get the same emotional impact that you got in the book. And I think what really got me furious in the book was Mabel Wirtz just kind of perking up when she sees what kind of agony that Mr. Glick is going through. Thank goodness that Father Callahan was here to help Mr. Glick. Speaking of Father Callahan, him losing to Barlow was just one heck of a gut punch, especially afterwards when he's wandering about town and can't even enter his own church because something that was basically done to him. For all of Callahan's personal flaws, he really did not deserve what Barlow did to him. Callahan and Lupe Delgado. It's a pretty small part of Wolves of the Kala, but it definitely stuck with me because of the amount of emotional honesty in there. It's also the small details, like Callahan still feeling Lupe's kiss on the cheek and Callahan's outburst about, God, he was beautiful. That, well, it definitely speaks to how good King really is with emotional honesty in his characters. I know, I know. And Lupe's death also sucked. I mean, we didn't see much of him except through Callahan's story, but from what I saw, he seemed like a genuinely nice, decent person, and I think that's another strength of King's. I remember Brad Jones, the cinema snob, complaining about a lack of likable characters in horror nowadays, and one of King's many strengths is that he actually gives you characters you genuinely care about, and the ones you dislike are, by and large, the ones that are supposed to dislike. Even some of the dislikable ones have an aspect of pity to them. Gage's Death one of the worst parts about it, honestly, was just everyone's reaction to it. King handled it really well. Just that shock and grief of losing a child in such a horrific way. From Lewis's shock to Ellie talking about the picture of Gage and Judd trying to comfort her to Ellie's promise of what she'll do until Gage comes back to the funeral brawl. And then, of course, what Lewis is driven to do because of it. Alan visiting Sean Rusk in the hospital in Needful Things. Brian's death was horrific enough, and his mother's complete indifference to it. I know it was the sunglasses kind of mind-controlling her, but it still got me angry that she ignored Brian's suicide and Sean's trauma. But seeing Sean in such a grief-stricken state and all of that at the age of seven really drove it home. I did like Alan's attempts to comfort him, though. It's one of the reasons I love Alan Pangborn. The man really does have a good heart, and I guess that's one of the reasons that Stephen King is awesome. There's a lot of horror here and monsters and the sort of depravity no one can really fathom, 
but there's also a lot of compassion, warmth, and light. Jack's last words to Danny before the hotel really takes him over. That was a powerful moment. And at the end, Dick Holleran comforting Danny about what happened at the Overlook. Completely agreed. Again, in Needful Things, Alan breaking down to Polly about Annie and Todd's death. Henry Bowers poisoning Mr. Chips and Patrick Hockstetter torturing that puppy. Both were things I had to skip while reading over it. Um, anyway, those are my takes on the most painful Stephen King moments. Your take on it may definitely vary, but those are my two cents. And thank you for reading. I hope I didn't go too long, by the way. Sincerely, a constant listener. No, you did not go too long. And this is one of the things I said in my... Um, in my review of the of the top 10 lists i want your top 10 lists everyone because as as um as bill pointed out um i completely forgot <laughs> about the dead zone entirely uh so i i think that it is important for for you to be able to to share your top whether it's heroes or villains or top painful moments or, or whatever it is so I, I can share them out because there's definitely I'm going to have gaps that I would like everyone to be able to, to fill in. And then Christian writes, Dear fellow constant reader, I've been listening and enjoying your podcast for quite a while and I am finally writing to let you know how much I appreciate your work. For as long as I can remember, Stephen King has been my favorite writer. I remember reading some of his books at age 11 or 12, but the first book of his that really impressed me was Christine. I was home alone at age 13-ish, and I finished the book before my parents came home, and I remember being scared to leave my room or turn off the lights. The next milestone was The Dark Tower. By the time I was in high school, I was aware of The Dark Tower books, but I hadn't sought them out for some reason. But one friend gave me The Wastelands for a birthday gift, so I had to read The Gunslinger and The Drawing of the Three first. The first line of The Gunslinger is my favorite first line in any book. So evocative and mysterious, you cannot help but read on. Also, the gunning down of the residents of Tall was incredible. I read and reread those books, and the series is still my favorite of King's works. One thing I enjoy about your podcast is hearing someone else's point of view, in particular someone with a more literary approach than me. I am very much a cigar-as-a-cigar kind of guy, and while some of your analyses are a bit out there, Dairy Queen equals Dairy Queen? Okay, um, uh, so... Christian, I, I need to, to clarify here, and um, I, I believe this is now the second time I, I've had to clarify. So um, what Christian is referring to is, oh God, um, is in my review of The Stand, I, I kind of just went off on a tangent just to be an ass, not to, not to be serious. I read a passage of The Stand in which Franny is eating um dairy queen with jess and i just went off on a tangent um i was just basically riffing and it's not to be taken seriously but basically what i do in that scene is just discuss um i i, I just basically discuss that the, the the connotations of dairy queen and lead it back to both it and the crimson king so guys it's not meant to be taken seriously, and I know that if you have to explain a joke, then the joke isn't funny. But um, I, 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 I just, I, I don't want it out there uh, that that is meant to be taken seriously, or that was a serious analysis. That was me kind of poking fun at myself. Um, but that is not meant to be uh, a, a serious, uh, legitimate analysis. Just, just, just to throw that out there. Okay, so. Back to Christian. Um, so I'm very much a cigar as a cigar kind of guy. Um, 
you do bring up many excellent points that I would not have thought of. I also get some satisfaction from your positive reviews of some of my favorite King books. I, too, enjoy the Tommyknockers and Under the Dome. Regarding the last, I, too, was disappointed about the death of Big Jim, as I would have liked Barbie to get some sort of retribution. I do see your point about him being brought down by his own greed. I will definitely reread it at some point, and maybe I will come around to your point of view. But likely I just want someone to kick his ass. <laughs> I completely, I, I completely understand that, that sentiment. It's a shame that Stephen King is recognized for his skills as a writer um, more than he is. I think, it's, I think it's a shame that Stephen King is not recognized for his skills as a writer more than he is. A lot of people are quite dismissive about him, which is probably true of many successful and popular artists. I'm definitely guilty in some cases. I have always loved King's characters, the way he puts the reader into the minds of persons. I haven't read any other writer who does that as well as King does. I've listened to most of your episodes, but I have skipped a select few because I want to read them or read them again before listening. These include The Talisman and books 5 through 7 of The Dark Tower. I realize that I don't remember a lot of details from those. I recall the death of Eddie and the ending, ascending to the tower and starting over, but not much in between. So I've started book 5 again and I'm looking forward to following Roland again. I just wanted to let you know that you are that your undoubtedly hard works make my days better. It's always a good day when the commute is accompanied by you. Thank you. Best regards, Christian. Christian, thank you for all the kind words. Um, and as someone that loves listening to podcasts on his way to and from work, the, the fact that I can kind of just make the day a little bit easier for someone, uh, is it's, it's a really, really good feeling. So, guys, um, if you have not done so already, feel free to write in at stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. Share all your thoughts. Um, uh, you know, what what do you like about Stephen King? What don't you like about Stephen King? How did you get into Stephen King? What does Stephen King mean to you? Um, are there is there anything that you agree that I've said? Is there anything that you disagree with, with what I've said? Um, and what are your thoughts um, on all of the Dark Tower news that's been coming out here for all of you Dark Tower fans? Uh, so, speaking of which... Last episode, I discussed at length the casting of The Dark Tower and the big news uh, press release that Entertainment Weekly had published early last week, I think. And since then, there's been some more more rumblings out there in Midworld, uh, the first of which was Aaron Paul, who has been for a while now a fan favorite actor to play Eddie. It's not official. Nothing's official. I don't even know if he's in, in negotiations. He was in negotiations uh, when Ron Howard was tapped to direct, and I don't know what happened with that. But not only was he in negotiations then, he is a major fan. He is a major Eddie Dean fan. So Aaron Paul, independent of anyone pursuing him, after hearing the news of the Dark Tower living again and, and beginning uh, pre-production and starting to film very, very shortly, and with all of the news that was coming out last week, he started tweeting at, at Stephen King. And he... He, he tweeted uh, for Stephen King to, to put in a good word for him to, to play Eddie Dean. Now, here's the deal. Anyone that has seen Breaking Bad will tell you that there is just something that's right about Aaron Paul playing Eddie Dean. There's just something that fits. Now, he's not the guy that I imagined when I first read it, which makes sense because I read it long before I even knew who Aaron Paul was. But even upon rereads, he... After a while, he's not the character that, that I thought. Um, 
But with that said, I think that the first time that we meet Eddie, that really sets Eddie up to be the Eddie that we come to, to know. If we don't meet Eddie in such the vulnerable place that he is, then his arc doesn't mean anything. So to me, Aaron Paul doesn't sort of match up with the later incarnation of Eddie, but that vulnerable um, that vulnerable character going through the withdrawals that has uh, a spine of steel through it all, uh, that is Aaron Paul. Um, and so to me, if Aaron Paul wants this, Aaron Paul should get it for a number of reasons. One, I think that he's going to be fantastic in the role of Eddie Dean. Um, you know, Eddie winds up getting a lot goofier later, um, but his sense of humor, it doesn't really, his sense of humor to me is, is more of a young John Cusack or a, a Paul Rudd, right? Like his, his corny jokes. Um, and, and that, like that, his personality in later books kind of matches those, those actors, but that doesn't mean that Aaron Paul can't do that. Um, I, I just, I think that our first, our first, um, meeting with Eddie is is going to be so important to get right and I, I think that Aaron Paul would be phenomenal um, and the fact that he wants it so badly I, I, I think that you want someone that's going to be able to love the source material and I, I think that because so many fans would would love to see him in this role I think that it would be a huge missed opportunity if you don't cast Aaron Paul in the role of Eddie Dean. So uh, Aaron Paul is is officially um, uh, sponsoring, I guess, uh, or rooting for Aaron Paul in this. Aaron Paul, if you are listening, you have my support. Um, I, I think that your, your acting on uh, Breaking Bad was phenomenal. Uh, Jesse is an incredible character. I think in, in the Venn diagram here, there's definitely a lot in the middle of that Venn diagram between Jesse and Eddie that I, I think that you would be able to just knock out of the ballpark. And on the opposite ends of the, the Venn diagram, I, I think that you would really be able to, to bring this character to life in, in new ways and be able to distance yourself from the, the Jesse type of character. But I, I think that for a, a a movie that is based on a novel that has everything to do with um, sort of twinning and mirroring and worlds bleeding into each other and the sense of the familiar set against the backdrop of the unfamiliar. Uh, I think that it kind of is very important to cast Aaron Paul in the role of Eddie Dean because for all of those reasons, because it does echo back to another piece of fictional work in the audiovisual medium, much in the same way that Stephen King echoed pieces of fictional works within the literary medium. So to me, it just makes sense on so many levels. Just cast the man, cast cast Aaron Paul as Eddie Dean. And then all of us, then you have uh, Idris Elba, Matthew McConaughey, and Aaron Paul in a movie. That is starting to shape up to be something that's very, very legitimate um, and, and makes you think that's not just going to be a flash in the pan. So I, I hope to God that that works out. Aaron Paul, sir, I am really rooting for you. I'm rooting for you to get the role of uh, Eddie Dean. I also can't wait for Hulu's The Path to come out. That looks incredible, and I can't wait to see what you bring uh, to, to that project. Anyone that has not seen the trailer for The Path, go out and watch that now um, because it looks incredible. So while Aaron Paul is not officially cast as Eddie Dean, 
That doesn't mean that we haven't had official casting. Um, so I am reading a an article from MovieWeb.com. The title is "The Dark Tower Finds Its Jake Chambers." With the lead roles of Roland Deschain and Randall Flagg already set, Sony's The Dark Tower has cast another pivotal character. Variety reports that the studio has cast young British actor Tom Taylor for the role of Jake Chambers. The studio held a worldwide casting search for this important role in the adaptation of Stephen King's novel series. The Dark Tower adaptation will bring Stephen King's series of seven novels to life, which follows Roland Deschain, a.k.a. The Gunslinger, who sets off on a journey to find the Dark Tower, rumored to be a portal to other worlds. Roland will be chased by the Man in Black, a.k.a. Walter Paddock, described as an ageless deceiver and sorcerer who is also trying to find the Dark Tower to rule over all of its kingdoms. Along his journey, Roland will seek help from a junkie named Eddie, an amputee named Susanna, and a young boy named Jake to be a part of his team known as a Ka-Tet. It was originally believed that the Dark Tower will be adapted from the first book, The Gunslinger, but both Stephen King and Nikolai Arcel wouldn't confirm which books the first movie will be drawn from. There is speculation that the movie may be based on the third book in the series, 1993's The Wastelands, where much of the Dark Tower mythology was laid out. The plot follows the Cotet's efforts to reach out to Jake, who is from a different place, New York City, and Time, which in the books was 1977, but it may be changed to modern day. Abby Lee has also been cast as Tirana, but Eddie and Susanna roles have not been cast yet. Nikolai Arcel is directing from a script he is rewriting with Anders Thomas Jensen, Akiva Goldsman, and Jeff Pinkner um, worked on the initial draft. Ron Howard, who was initially set to direct when the project was set up at Universal, is producing alongside his Imagine Entertainment partners Brian Grazer and Erica Huggins. Production is scheduled to begin this spring, with MRC also developing a companion TV series. And I don't know if that is, I don't know if that's official, that TV series portion. Sony has already set a February 17, 2017 release date for The Dark Tower, which will go up against 20th Century's Fox, The Maze Runner, The Death Cure, and Universal's The Great Wall. Uh, this role will be the largest in young Tom Taylor's career, having previously appeared on the UK TV shows Dr. Foster and The Last Kingdoms, and most recently, TNT's Legends. So, um... This this is this is big. It's starting it's starting to shape up. I have no idea who this young actor is, um, but this is this is a huge huge role, uh, and I I I hope that uh, this young kid is able to to pull it off. So, uh, like I said, I will be if there is Dark Tower news, I will definitely record my thoughts about that news here. Okay, so with my shameless plug out of the way, with the iTunes reviews out of the way, with the um, listener emails out of the way, and with the Dark Tower movie news out of the way, it is time for my thoughts on 11-22-63, episode 4. So, here's, here, here's the deal. The novel, remember, was told in first-person perspective. Uh, so, the adaptation here, it allows for a wider perspective. And I think that that really helps as we're able to see Oswald in his living room, um, timing himself to see how quickly he can assemble his rifle. This is a good moment, guys, and I really enjoy being able to spend some time with this character. See, it makes him an actual person and pulls him from the shadows so he's more than just history's boogeyman. When we finally see Oswald, when there is that final confrontation between Jake and Oswald in the concluding pages of 112263, Stephen King gives into 
the the horror writer inside of him and jake describes how oswald's face changes in that moment and he does become history's boogeyman he does become uh like a, a devil of time um it, it suggests that there is something whether it's conscious or unconscious there's something dark and evil and monstrous within him that's just more than the dark and monstrous nature that that we have within ourselves um so here however we see him as just being oswald oswald the man oswald the family man oswald the gun enthusiast right uh so i i think that that is this is a, a strength of the audiovisual medium where we're able to get outside of Jake's head and be able to spend some some more time with these actual characters and let them be actual people. You know, both Oswald and Marina. Um, and I'll get to her in a little bit. Hey, Sonny! Sonny! Come here. Excuse me. Sorry, guys. My, my dog is one of them. is just exploring nooks and crannies i'd rather have him not explore um so going back to oswald i mean we we get the awful duality of this guy um so think about it here i mean in the same scene he's he's preparing for an assassination while attending to his baby so we get both the monster and the man and then we get a great moment where oswald stands to have his photo taken in what will later become a famous historical document so, as much as Oswald here is a dangerous wild card in history, uh, a bigger wild card here for all of us is Bill Turcott. Okay, a, a character that basically is made up, for all intents and purposes, is made up for this adaptation. And we see that he begins to have a growing obsession with Marina Oswald, which makes this whole thing unpredictable and outside the pages of the book. I, having read the book twice now, have no idea how this is going to impact the story. If it will. You know, in the book, there was no Bill. At least not in this capacity. So I don't have any idea where this might lead. And I love that uncertainty. I love this deviation. Meanwhile, Jake and Sadie continue to fall in love. As he sings badly, badly out of tune. Um, he sings the Beatles, uh, and of course this is uh, pre-Beatles, so he uses his future knowledge to gently woo her. Um, you know, it's tender, it's a little cheesy, and their very brief make-out sesh is interrupted by the principal, Deke, and um, Jake is then given a, a place to go to spend some time with her, the bungalows, which we saw in the book. Just as last episode showcased the everyday racism, this episode shows us the gender politics of the time. Um, you know, in, in the eyes of, you know, 1962, I, I believe is, is where they're at, um, Sadie is someone whose character needs to be protected by a man. So rather than being able to demonstrate affection in public, in order for her to not be shamed, she needs to hide in a bungalow. Now, this is different by PDA, by the way. Nobody likes PDA, but this here, this is social shaming. So Jake is then set upon by Miss Mimi, who has discovered that he is not who he says he is. Again, is another example of the past pushing back. Just as he gets a lead on Oswald, Mimi shows up with the knowledge that he isn't Jake Amberson, but Jake Epping. 
And here, again deviating from the book, Jake is able to get himself out of his predicament by explaining that he's been given a new identity by the FBI for testifying against the Mafia. Because this takes place before the Mafia was popularized, he's then able to simply recite the plot of The Godfather. Um, which is fun. So I, I like these this kind of him using pop culture uh, to, to help him get out of uh, certain situations here. Uh, but what the, the, the bigger takeaway here, it isn't just fun for fun's sake. Um, you know, this scene uh, is important because it's, it's Miss Mimi urging Jake to, to tell Sadie the truth. So what I like here is that the, the, the sort of mom and dad figure in his life, uh, Deke and Miss Mimi, um, are each enabling him, not enabling him, but giving him the tools that he needs to, to take this burgeoning relationship that he has with Sadie and, and really make something with it. You know, uh, Deke giving him the, the, the recommendation of the bungalows where they can actually get to really, really know each other and Miss Mimi saying, hey, listen, um, you know, if you really do care about this woman, then you, you need to show that you care. And it's, it's not through, you know, quick, a quick makeout session. It's, it's by being honest with, with her. So, I mean, Jake and Sadie have a nice moment in the bungalow, um, a slow dance to Sam Cooke. Now they get to know each other a little bit more, and their growing romance is interrupted by a threatening envelope that shows pictures of them together. Now, while we'll later learn that these pictures are from Sadie's ex, uh, for now, we're led to believe that the pictures are from the CIA or another agency, um, and rightfully so, Jake is living in a world of paranoia right now, unsure of whether or not Oswald is acting alone, whether or not he's just a puppet for the feds. He's he's not sure. So he's so the, the fact that that's where his mind goes, I mean, that's completely, completely a, a natural reaction for someone that's time traveling. So after a rough night of spying, um, back at school, Jake spots Mimi coughing, a telltale sign of incoming death. Sadie's ex then shows up, a plot development that did occur in the novel, though albeit in a different way. In the novel, it, it, it plays out as a surprise, an awful surprise with a terrible resolution. But here we get to see him coming. The threat of the ex continues to grow. It allows Sadie to reveal her trust of Jake by giving, her, um, giving him her secret. After she tells him of um, his sexual aversion and uh, domestic abuse, Jake winds up having a confrontation with the man. And the best part is watching Johnny, um, who is Sadie's ex. So during this scene, just watching Johnny lean against his car the entire time. The car, of course, being a 1958 Plymouth Fury Christine herself. I love stuff like that, and I, I wish that the um, the show was doing more of that. Now, let's talk about Johnny here, and, and not so much Johnny, T.R. Knight, the actor. What a phenomenal job. Last week, I would say that the, the scene stealer was, I can't remember his name, but the, the man playing Oswald, I, I think, did an incredible job last week. Um, here, T.R. Knight, I think, just knocks out of ballpark, just comes in, drops the mic, and, and walks off stage. There is a dangerous menace here um, with an impassivity that's just unbelievably off-putting. Distractedly possessed is how I'd describe it. So, although Jake wins the argument, it's clear that he's pushed the man off the deep edge. Now, the beginning of the episode showed Bill's growing infatuation with Marina, and the episode ends with the consequence of that. 
Bill, working not only for Jake, but for time itself, has to let Marina be victimized by her husband. Now, for a character who is basically made up whole cloth for the adaptation, this is an incredibly well-realized and poignant character arc. It allows for some interesting possible deviations to the source material, which includes questions like, will he want to kill Oswald before Jake can prove he's working alone? Will he engage in a relationship with Marina, thereby majorly changing the course of history? Will his resentment in having to endure Marina's abuse cause an irrevocable rift between he and Jake? If so, how will this affect Jake's plotline? Now, these are all legitimate questions, and ones that are organic to the story that they're currently telling. So when Bill tells Jake we're a team, I completely buy it, and I worry that his growing um, affection for Marina will cause that team to split up, um, which will be danger to both of them. Oh my god, and just thinking about it now, if they... if it, oh my God! So like now I'm I'm thinking I'm I'm thinking ahead um, to the end of of eleven twenty two sixty three with the, him being a friend to Jake. When Jake goes into the present, there's gotta be there has to be a poignant moment between the two of them now, right? That's I'm looking forward to that. Okay, so the episode concludes with Sadie entering a classic Stephen King story, by which I mean a horror story. I mean, she enters Jake's home and Jody thinking that she's visiting Jake. Hey, baby plays in the background while unbeknownst to her, a stranger lurks. One dressed as a low man, by the way, from low men in yellow coats. And while in the house, she discovers Jake's secret before he has a chance to tell her. Not that she fully understands. Um, all that she knows is that he is not who he says he is. And on that cliffhanger, uh, the, the episode ends and, and that's all that we have for this week guys so i mean i think that this episode kind of uh i don't want to say suffers but i mean that's the word that i'll use but i think that kind of suffers from being the middle of the story it's episode four are there are there eight episodes altogether i believe that there are yeah eight episodes so we are um you know we got you know four more episodes i think there's a lot to cover but right now they're they're setting up they're they're setting up um you know the 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 rest of the the story so, um, you know, I think that's important. We have two men that are falling in love here, and we don't know how the, the, their affections for their significant others are going to affect time itself. But my want to know is going to make me come back and watch the next episode, that's for sure. So, guys, if you have any thoughts on, on um, 11.22.63 or anything uh, Stephen King, please write in to stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. And uh, stay tuned next time as I review uh, the episode 5 of 11.22.63. So may you have long days and pleasant nights. And I will see you here next time where M-O-O-N spells Stephen Kingcast. Oh.